Welcome to episode 72 of Therese Talk. I'm your host, Therese Main. By day, I co-host a morning radio show on a network in New York and Pennsylvania. By night, I'm a podcaster. If you're a woman like me who loves Jesus and just wants to serve her family and community a little bit better, you're in the right place. It's hard to believe in this day and age, the stigma around mental health issues is still hanging around. We can be loved, redeemed, valuable Christians, and still face mental health issues. Especially for our children, it's important that we talk about these issues honestly. They're real, and there's something you can live a full, healthy life with Jesus with. Jean Holthouse is a Christian counselor and a social worker with more than 20 years of experience working with families and children. She has spent years exploring how anxiety affects kids' minds, thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. We've had a rough couple of years. Is that the reason for the uptick in anxiety that we're seeing in kids? We as adults have had increased anxiety as a result of it, and children have fewer coping skills than we do, and less of a sense of how to deal with things that are abstract concepts. And COVID hasn't something you can see, hear, feel, touch, or taste, so it's an abstract concept, and it's been kind of like this invisible enemy. If you think about like an enemy you can't see, that would make anybody anxious. There is kind of a stigma around mental health issues, anxiety, depression, things like that in Christian circles. It's okay to love Jesus and to be (laughs) fighting a mental health issue. Definitely true. It's not any different. Um, I use diabetes as something to compare it to because diabetes is an imbalance of chemicals in your body. And anxiety disorders are an imbalance of chemicals in your body. And you wouldn't think you were being a bad Christian if you went to the doctor to get treatment for high blood sugar or low blood sugar. And this is no different. There is something, though, about God and our view of God, how kids see God, that can affect anxiety. What is a good, healthy view of God for us to have for our kids and maybe kind of through the different ages? You have to remember that God also is an abstract concept in terms of you can't see, hear, feel, touch, and taste him. And so kids take, particularly small children, take the largest, most powerful figure in their world, and they figure that God is a bigger version of that figure, which is generally speaking a parent. And so we are actually modeling for our children what God feels towards them, right? And we need them to develop a sense that God cares about them as an individual, that he is for them, right? He's not up there counting all of their sins and waiting to kind of smoosh them or punish them for their sins, but that he is a loving God who is for them. And when they make mistakes, um, is encouraging them and helping them to learn and go on and be productive. Much the same way I I like to use the illustration of when, as a parent learns, um, helps a child learn to walk. Every time the child falls down, we don't go, oh my goodness, I can't believe they fell down again. Right? Right? We're like encouraging them to get up and try again. And kids need to see God in that light that he knows we're going to make mistakes. He's not up there going, well, that's fine. But he's like, okay, what are we going to learn from it? Get up and try again. And he's a forgiving God who's on their side and is for them. Um, And they develop that kind of over their life. So they start with emulating their parents. And then they begin to be able to read scripture as they get older and develop a, a, a mental image of God that is a blend of their parents and what they've experienced and what they read about in scripture and how they might see that live out in their life in other places until eventually they kind of have a concept of God. 
And if that concept of God is that he's generally for them and he cares about them, that will help them to manage anxiety. Anxiety is not an entirely bad thing. I mean, it's kind of a body's response to something that's not quite right, which is important for us to have. That helps us to discern good, evil, danger, safety, you Mm -hmm. know. But when it gets off kilter, that's when it might be something to be looked at. One thing you do in your book is give parents a guide between healthy anxiety and anxiety you should worry about starting at birth. Can we just go through some of those phases and a few of the things that you might see, you know, in birth to two years old, what would be something that's cause for concern? Healthy anxiety is always a response to external things, but children don't think like adults. So in birth to two years old, you're going to see children being afraid to be separated from adults and fearing and having anxiety around that or things that are unknowns or larger than them or new things. But generally speaking, they should be, if they're in a healthy space, pretty easily comforted by that parent figure. If it becomes that place where it's inconsolable anxiety or in any of these phases along the way, if it's an anxiety that is interfering with their ability to function as a healthy child of that age would function, that's cause for concern. We get into early childhood, and this is Mm -hmm. kind of a a time of make-believe and imagination. So where are the trigger points? Yeah. I think in early childhood, you have to remember that children don't necessarily know the difference between imagination and real life. So if you have them watch a TV show, they oftentimes can't tell you whether that's play or real, right? And so things like um, clowns that wear makeup um, or scary movies create anxiety for children. Um, And those are like they fear the, the, the monster under the bed in the middle of the night when they wake up. Those are kind of normal fears. Um, but again, if those are inter- if those are rising to the level where they're interfering with their functioning, so like they won't go stay overnight with a friend, um, or they won't go to bed any place but in their parents' bed, right? Though that would be saying, okay, no, that's outside of where we would expect it to be normal for a child of that age, and then that's where you'd want to get help for it. And then we get into middle childhood. This is where relationships start to form. We might see some warning signs in those peer relationships. And that's oftentimes that middle childhood is that place where we begin to see anxiety disorders kind of really kind of blossom and grow because the child is beginning to develop a slight bit of sense of independence and identity separate from. So fears around what other people might be thinking of them, whether bad things are going to happen to people, like fear of kind of the of the unknown and of losing things or having something bad happen, like I might throw up in class. Um, all of those things that like could have, should have ought us start entering the picture. And if those things become things that are keeping them from doing, from adventuring and trying and growing, that's where we would worry about it. And if we can spot those things in middle childhood, it'll save us a lot of trouble in adolescence because that's just a time of so much upheaval anyway. How do we discern this is something that I need to maybe partner with my kid on or see a professional on, or this is just how teenagers are? I think that's the place that's the hardest because teenagers are in such upheaval. I mean, their hormones are going through such changes. Their bodies are going through such such changes and they're beginning to become independent of the adults in their world. So part of what has provided safety up to that space is trusting that the adults in their world have it 
and they don't have to have it all. And in adolescence, you're beginning to figure out who am I and how do I function as a young adult? And that's incredibly anxiety provoking um, for a lot of teenagers. And so they, they go through wide mood swings where they're scared to death that the zit on their nose is going to mean that no one cares about them anymore and they're going to be ostracized forever, right? But the deal with that is that it passes. So what you want to look at to tell if it's normal or something that maybe is a problem is as the, like, the zit on their nose goes away, does the anxiety also go away? And can they manage that anxiety even while they have the zit on their nose so that they can still participate? They may need a lot of reassurance from you. And you may think some of the things that they're anxious about are unrealistic or out of proportion because they tend to make things maybe larger than they really are. Um, But if they can still manage it and continue to function in healthy ways without it taking a ton of energy to manage it, and it seems to fluctuate and and it doesn't just stay there always, like the kid that every morning struggles to get to school and spends an hour trying to figure out how to get themselves perfect enough that they're not going to get rejected at school, that sounds like potentially something that's impairing their world in some ways. They're trying so hard to manage that anxiety. It's taking a lot of time and energy. When you suspect that your child has an anxiety disorder, there's a tendency to kind of, let's just, let's talk to Mm -hmm. the other parent about it. Let's talk to maybe the social worker at school. Let's talk to a teacher. Let's talk to the youth leader. But in your book, this concept of partnering with your child says, hey, let's talk to our kid about this. Let's put it all in the light. Yeah, because it, it normalizes it. it. Says, okay, we the problem isn't you as the child or me as the parent. The problem is anxiety. It's kind of like the football in between us, and we're going to kick it around and figure out how we accomplish, how we conquer it, right? Um, and it becomes this thing that's not hush hush, and we should be ashamed of it, and we need to hide it, rather than it's this this illness or this problem that we're going to figure out how we conquer together. And you're not in this alone, because I think particularly children. A middle middle age and above oftentimes feel like this is kind of their own personal um, nightmare, and they have to manage the nightmare alone. And that's a horrible feeling for kids. They can see that they, you're on their team and you're for them, and you're going to help them figure it out. You're not going to tell them what to do, but you're going to coach them along the way, and you're going to encourage them. You're going to be a great cheerleader for them. And you're going to be the safe place that they can say, okay, I've really struggled with it today. They'll do way better. And faith can play a role in that, but it's not enough to just say, okay, I have faith. God's going to fix all this. (laughs) I wish it would be great if that happened. And sometimes remembering that God is bigger than we are and God's got it is enough because it reminds us, now, wait a minute, I get to be little and he's big, but for someone that has an anxiety disorder, that's probably not going to be the only thing that's needed. They're going to need um, anxiety is one of those things that creeps in and it subtly begins to take up ground in our life. And we have to learn to think differently and behave differently and move and operate differently in our world in order to conquer it and kind of kick it back out. And prayer and faith in God is one of those things, but it's one of those things. It's like one spoke in the wheel and our thoughts and our behaviors, and how we manage the feelings in our body are other spokes in that wheel. 
You've got a terrific resource in the back of your book of feeling words and even feeling faces for kids who maybe (laughs) can't come up with the words. But, you know, when you have a child wake up with a stomach ache and you have uh, words here that can say, okay, how do we use these words to get from the I don't feel good, I don't want to go face what today is to, well, what you might be feeling is this and how do we get through that? So I think you have to remember that kids don't necessarily know how to how to name feelings until they're taught. Um, so we learn what a feeling is by like, you know, you fall down when you're two and you're skin your knee and you start to cry and your mom or your dad says, oh, you look really sad. And so the child learns to associate the feeling with a word. So then they can tell you sad next time they have that same feeling. Um, and oftentimes we don't recognize that. And so we're not deliberately teaching words to kids that go with feelings. We just assume they know what they feel and they know what the experience is, but they not, may not have good language for it. That's why I put both the faces in there and the words, because oftentimes children can identify a face that that face looks like how I'm feeling inside. And then the parent can then begin to tag words with it and teach them language to express um, kind of what they're feeling. Um, And oftentimes with older children, they can even just look at the list and say, yeah, that word resonates, that one fits. And it begins to give them um, kind of shades to pick from because, you know, we start with mad, sad and glad. Well, there are lots of shades of each one of those. There are lots of shades of mad. I might be frustrated. I might be furious. Right. But until we get good language around it, it's hard to describe it. So you can use that that list with older kiddos by just giving it to them and saying, what words do you feel like fit? And sometimes they even have to look some of them up, um, but it, be, it begins a way to say, like, I'm going to create a picture for you of how I feel. Um, and different kids do that differently. I would venture a guess that there is an adult listening now who may or may not be seeing some of these traits in their kids, but is saying, wait a second, I'm I'm feeling some of this in me. Is there a point where we've missed the boat on anxiety where it's just something that can't be fixed? Or is there always a place where, yes, we can start to venture through this? There is always a place. It is never too late to work at it. And it's important to recognize it shows up at different places. You may go through a large portion of your life and not have difficulties with anxiety. And then maybe you go through something like, let's say COVID. And all of a sudden, a person that's never been feeling anxious is all of a sudden feeling it. So no matter where you are, if you begin to notice those signs and symptoms, it's really important to look at kind of, okay, this is not normal for me, or this is not healthy for me. What sort of resources do I need in order to learn a way to handle this or manage this so that it's not interfering in my life? Jean's book is called When Anxiety Roars. You can connect to it and her on our show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode of Therese Talk, be sure to subscribe and look for the next episode on Tuesday morning. If you really loved it, consider making a gift to Family Life, the ministry this podcast is a part of. Just go to familylife.org and find out more about what we do. Did you know Family Life offers a variety of podcasts? Get up to date with Family Life News or enjoy some family time with Family Life Kids. There's also the newest offering, The Parable Podcast, bringing you hope and encouragement through the teachings of Jesus. They're all free and on demand at familylife.org slash podcast.